1: You're listening to Slice of Cheese with Jenny Linford on Food FM. Enhance your cheese board with Peter's Yard sourdough crackers this Christmas. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado, Amazon, Petersyard.com, and specialist food retailers. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Hello, welcome to
2: A Slice of Cheese the Food FM radio series that celebrates the world of cheese. I'm Jenny Linford, a food writer and cheese enthusiast, the author of Great British Cheeses. Cheese is a delicious and fascinating food, and we're setting out to explore this remarkable food and share the stories of the people who make, sell, and love it. This week on A Slice of Cheese, we explore the microbial starter cultures, which play a key part in cheesemaking. As the name suggests, they are used at the start of the cheesemaking process. I talked to Ronwin Percival, Cheese by Phineas Yard Dairy and co-author of Reinventing the Wheel. Giles Barber of Barber's Cheddar Cheese tells the story of his family's role in preserving Britain's traditional cheese starter cultures.
1: Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Enhance your cheese board with Peter's Yard Sourdough Crackers this Christmas. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers
2: this week on a slice of cheese very happy to welcome back an old friend of the program bronwyn percival who is buyer and technical manager for neil's yard dairy hello bronwyn hi jenny bronwyn this week on a slice of cheese we're looking at the whole subject of starter cultures um and that's a term which is used a lot in cheese making but i think it's a term which is quite puzzling for people who are not in the world of cheese. So I, I wanted to ask if you could explain to us what that is. What do starter cultures do in cheese making?
0: Well, so I think we all know that cheese making is a process of fermentation, and that fermentation is carried out by lactic acid bacteria, which take the sugars in the milk and digest them into lactic acid, which is very important for the um, well, it's very important for the preservation of the cheese to say the least. Um, And so originally there were no starter cultures. People, you know, cheese making existed for thousands of years before anybody knew about uh, what a microbe was. Um, And uh, lactic acid bacteria are present naturally in all raw milk to varying degrees. And um, it was only in the late 19th century that it was discovered that you could isolate strains of lactic acid bacteria and reintroduce them to milk, whether it was raw or pasteurized, Mm -hmm. and uh, use that then to drive the acidification of uh, the milk using known strains of bacteria. Now, before that point, it wasn't that people were never doing things within their cheesemaking that Increased the amount of bacteria in their cheese, or acted as starter cultures. And indeed, if you look to uh, many kind of classic styles of European cheese, from Parmigiano Reggiano to Comte, to you know French lactic goat's cheeses, um, all of those are using technology known as way starters to Uh um, to add bacteria, to add concentrated um, cocktails of bacteria back to that milk and drive the acidification. So, way starters are starter cultures too. But right. um, really, it's it's uh, it was only in sort of the early 20th century, early to mid 20th century yeah. that commercial starters generated, you know, produced by um, biotech companies really became the norm in most cheesemaking.
2: That's very interesting. Yes. I mean, it's that story of. Sort of industrialization of food making, um, yeah, it's something you see it across, don't we? Um, so many foods, um, and that's interesting. So, so starter cultures. So if I was if I wanted to make cheese, I could nowadays presume I could just go online and buy what packets of different starter cultures that would take my would help me what help me produce what a blue cheese or a cheddar style cheese is that how they are sold? Yeah, you know, I think there's this perception that
0: they're different types of starter culture that would go into making a blue cheese or a cheddar or a lactic goat's cheese. But the truth is that um, starter cultures are very, um, very adaptable and flexible. And really, uh, you know, I think a good example is that the same starter culture is used to make Ragstone cheese, Stichelton cheese, Kirkham's Lancashire, um, you know, some uh, Westcombe cheddar, uh, you can use the same starter culture to make all of those different cheeses. So it's not just like the style of bacteria determines the style of cheese. What really determines the style of cheese is the process of the make. How much the curd is heated, yeah. how much it's stirred, how it's treated. That determines the cheese. Starter cultures do come in different varieties though and I think the most useful way of thinking about them is that some are some like moderate temperatures and some like really hot temperatures. So the starter cultures that you would use to create a cheese that's cooked to a hot temperature during the make, like a Parmesan original would not work if you were going to be making a cheddar cheese with it.
2: Oh, that's so interesting. So that's the, so it's the temperature, which the, they can survive then in a way, is that, is that, exactly. right? is that a factor? Okay, yeah. oh, that's very interesting. And what have you, you know, in your job run when you're always out and about and working very closely with cheesemakers, are you, what are you seeing? Are you, because I get the impression when I talk to cheesemakers in Britain that often they're exploring aspects of their cheesemaking, you know, whether perhaps it's the, the pasture that their livestock are being fed, you know, are grazing on, um, perhaps they're working on that. But are they also, is, Are they also looking at starter cultures? Is there a a move to explore the potential of starter cultures?
0: I think uh, there's been a lot of interest in um, starter cultures more recently. Um, You know, 15 years ago, if you asked people about whether it was possible to make your own starter cultures to make British styles of cheese, they probably would have said that that would be madness. And in fact, now we have a much more um, active conversation with a lot of producers who have really kind of started to understand what it means to be making raw milk and the interest of maybe making a raw milk with a unique microbial community and how best to express that in their finished cheese. I think there's concern that adding um, commercial starters means that those finished cheeses are going to reflect the commercial strains that are available to everyone rather than the unique fingerprint and flavor profile of their farm. So yeah, there's a lot more conversation going on now than ever before about sort of making one's own starters but i would also say that the conversation is very much at its beginning and it's important to note that you know and if you look back 150 years people would have been actually using no starter culture whatsoever and pre-ripening the milk that they would um, get in an evening in the dairy not at a hot temperature but not at a cold temperature either and then adding the next morning's warm milk on top of that and proceeding to wait for some acidity development to happen just using the the microbes that were present in the milk with no helping hand from any way uh, or starter culture and making cheese that way. And it's really interesting. Yeah. (laughs) No, I was going to say that's really interesting. Sorry. No, carry on. (laughs) No, And it's it's really interesting to read historical accounts of this because what was clear was that uh, depending on the temperature overnight, depending on the temperature of the dairy during the day and, and, you know, the activity of the milk, what the variable was, uh, was the amount of time it took to, the, to make the cheese. And you can see cheese making records where one day they finished the make at 1 p.m. and the next day they finished the make at 9 p.m. And it, the job of a good cheese maker was to kind of look at and smell and taste the curd and recognize how quickly that acidification was going and then match the production process to that so that one, you know, they didn't go faster than the milk was going. And actually people were very good at turning out
2: consistent cheese in that way. In, in other countries where cheese are made, are they also looking at starter cultures with interest or have they retained traditional ways of, or, you know, traditional starter cultures or, or yes, I just interested in, in sort of a comparison, I suppose, Bonwin. Um, if you look like at places like um, France and
0: Italy and, you know, continental Europe where you have these specific kinds of cheeses that are appropriate for the use of um, way starters, then much of that practice is actually enshrined in the descriptions of those cheeses uh, and the legal protections for them. So, for example, you cannot make a Parmesan that doesn't use a way starter, that makes any sense, Um, or a Colté that doesn't use a way starter. So, you know, people think, oh, making your own starter cultures is is such a kind of, cutting edge technology. Well, in many ways it is, but in many ways we all eat cheeses all the time that are made without commercial starters. Um, And we we know them well, we just might not know that they're made in that way. Um, But, you know, I think an interesting example is the example of the United States, where, um, I don't know if you've heard of the uh, Cornerstone Project, but... um, no, so this really interesting couple, uh, Peter Dixon and Rachel fritz Fritschall, are based at Parish Hill Creamery in Vermont. And they have been experimenting with soured milk cultures to create what they're calling a sort of American original style of cheese that they call mm. Cornerstone. And so they developed this cheese with soured milk cultures and then um, taught several other farmhouse cheesemakers using their own milk the method Um, and now they all make a version of Cornerstone. America doesn't have, uh, you know, the United States of America doesn't have a hugely long tradition of European-style cheesemaking, but it's very interesting to know that kind of in a similar way to the United Kingdom, there is a discussion that's evolving around the edges about what making one's own cultures looks like and um, kind of spreading that between different farms to get a sense of, if you're making the same cheese, but everybody's making it with their own microbes, mm. you know, how can we start to taste the flavours of those different parts?
2: That is fascinating, isn't it? I mean, I suppose that's, that is what it then offers, does it? That I suppose if you're buying, you know, um, a commercially made starter culture, there is a uniformity about that because, you know, because that's it, you know, lots of people are buying it. So in a way, is it, it's the, I suppose it's an ideal of making, it's one of the ideas of, making your own starter culture as a cheesemaker that you would have a, a more unique expression then
0: i think that's entirely why people would do it i mean making your own starter culture is more work and more trouble than buying something from a packet that you know you can just add to your vat at a moment's notice there's certain things about those starter cultures particularly whey starters that require you to make cheese with fresh milk every day and that right. doesn't fit into a lot of people's cheesemaking systems whereas with yeah. you're using a freeze dried starter culture and you can just um you know, make cheese once a week and the starter culture is in your freezer ready to go or in the fridge ready to go. It just makes that one step that much simpler. So, yeah, that's why people use them. They're consistent. They're simple. But perhaps there is a degree to which they mask the uniqueness of the milk, even when they're used for raw milk
2: cheeses. Very interesting. And we in fact, one of the other interviews, Bronwyn, on this episode is with Giles Barber of Barbers Cheese about you know this, the cultures that that barbers have, uh, I suppose, have have sort of kept kept going in a way. Yes, and that was really interesting to talk to Giles about that. As I understand it, those pint starters are very specific to Britain. I, that's what I've been told. Is that, is that something that, that you would Yes. With?
0: Yes. No, that's that's right. That uh, pint starters, other countries. Uh, do have a history of using liquid starters for particular styles of cheese. And, you know, for example, the Floridanica culture, which is sort of which was developed in Denmark and also which is a very popular culture to uh, to use now, uh, is quite similar in its liquid form to a barber's pint starter. Um, just in terms of the complexity of its community and the fact that the different microbes in that community are a community of organisms working together um synergistically rather than just a mixture of different species which many of the sort of more standard dbi cultures these direct fat freeze-dried commercial cultures are just a mixture of six or eight different strains uh not a community of microbes and so yes i i would say they're not totally unique in the world uh the pint starters but mm-hmm. because of british cheese and the way that it works insofar as a lot of those cheese makes require some acidity development before you go on and start making the cheese. Pint starters technically make a lot of sense to use for those styles of cheese. And so maybe it's unsurprising that this, you know, this approach and this collection uh, developed here.
2: Right, that's very interesting. Well, boom, that's fascinating. Um, an insight into what it sounds a very intriguing and actually quite complex world and, and world that there's more to learn by the sounds of it. Absolutely. One other thing I would say is that if people are really interested in
0: um, understanding a little bit more about soured, uh, soured milk culture cheeses, Cornerstone Project has been the subject of some academic research recently that was presented um, at the Science of Artisan Cheese Conference in August. We have a link to it on the Science of Artisan Cheese website, and so people can watch the whole presentation, hear about the research that was done and the kind of microbial succession that was happening in the different kind of cheeses made on different farms using the same method with the farm-made starters. And I just think it's a really interesting um, a really interesting example of the work that's taking place in this area and the sort of cutting edge of creating new cheeses and new ways of producing starter cultures.
2: So Bronwyn, thank you yeah, again. It's always fascinating to talk to you. And I can hear you at a very busy workspace. And, uh, <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. It adds a lot of character. So um, yeah, <laughs> t- thank you for your time. Thanks, Bronwyn. Wonderful. Speak again with you soon. Bye. Bye. I'm a huge fan of Peter's Yard's crackers, and they always feature on my Christmas cheese board. All Peter's Yard's crackers are made in small batches using quality natural ingredients and their sourdough starter, slowly fermented for 16 hours for award-winning flavour and crunch. Visit petersyard.com forward slash shop Enter the code SLICE OF CHEESE at the checkout to receive 25% off your first order.
1: Online, on Smart Speakers, and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Enhance your cheese board with Peter's Yard Sourdough Crackers this Christmas. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado, Amazon, PetersYard.com, and specialist food retailers.
2: Before we go on exploring the world of cheese, here's news of another Food FM programme that I think you'd really enjoy.
1: Thank you, Jenny. Well, I'm David, the host of The Drinking Hour here on Food FM. Each week, we explore the wonderful world of wine, spirits and beer, all things that make wonderful pairings with cheese, of course. We hear from those for whom making drinks is a passion. So after your cheese course, how about you join me for a few drinks? You can find The Drinking Hour with David Kermode on your usual podcast platform and at foodfmradio.com. Now it's back to Jenny and a slice of cheese.
2: This week on A Slice of Cheese, very happy to have with me today, Giles Barber of Barber's. Hello, Giles.
3: Hi, Jenny. Uh, nice, Nice to be back again.
2: Yeah, it's lovely to have you back. We're talking about a subject which is very close to your heart on this episode, which is we're looking at starter cultures. I think I felt I couldn't make an episode without having you on it, because, you know, barbers, you've got different aspects of your business, haven't you? You've got your own cheddar making side, but you also have a sort of a side which perhaps is less well known to the public, which is this whole extraordinary um, collection of, of starter cultures which was created by, by your uncle. But perhaps you should, why didn't you tell us that story in your own words? Yes, thanks Jenny.
3: As you well know, starter cultures are, are very close to our heart. Indeed, anyone who enjoys cheese, uh, starter cultures uh, should play uh, and have a special place in, in everyone's heart because there's not that many ingredients you need to make cheese. Uh, and starter culture is absolutely vital to uh, the character and, and nature of the finished cheese. and. Um, as you say, it's extremely close to our heart. At Barber's, we've, we, we are uh, primarily and have been since 1833 uh, making cheddar uh, and other hard uh, British territorial cheeses. Uh, the story, story of our starter cultures really goes back uh, many generations and quite probably the records aren't very good back to 1833, but quite probably right back to then. The, the kind of the starter cultures that we still use today were derived really from the the bacteria found in the milk of this region going back generations. Originally, what would have happened, uh, uh, we're we're based in the village of Ditchick. We're only 15 miles uh, from the village of Cheddar itself. We're right in the heart of of cheddar-making country. Uh, Even back as recently as the the 1960s, there would have been 12 farmhouse cheese-making businesses all making cheddar in our very small village. There's only Mm. sort of 800 or so people in the village um and really back in the early days uh, starter cultures would have been nothing more really than the the way from the previous day's cheese making uh, and every cheese maker would have uh, would have retained some of the way from the previous day to seed or to start the cheese making process the next day right um it was quite an imprecise uh, science uh, and and often it would be apt to go wrong, uh, mainly due to uh, the outside attack of things like phage bacteria, which I'm not sure whether you're covering somewhere in this, but I'm, I'm not a scientist, but uh, unfriendly bacteria would attack the friendly bacteria and kill off your, your starter culture in the, in the form of a, a, the, the previous day's whey. Every so often you would get what would be called a blackout, which means that your cheesemaking process wouldn't start and you'd really have to throw that uh, day's uh, mm. cheesemaker away. What would happen is that you'd have to go to the next door neighbor to get some of their way to start your next day's cheese making process, so it was a very cooperative system hmm. of, of helping your neighbor. Uh, because you're all going to end up in that place one day right uh, so that's that's really the, the history, if you like, and the origins of the start cultures that we use today. Back in the sort of 40s and 50s, what happened was that Unigate actually. So, my uncle probably can't be credited with everything, uh, he, he's credited with a lot, but the actual uh, the history of uh, the John Lewis pint starter cultures that we currently use today was that uh, Unigate uh, and their laboratories uh, started to uh, go around and, and isolate uh, the best of these starter cultures used in the region. Uh, from the way, and they started to, for want of a better expression, clean clean up the starter cultures to get rid of. There was there was probably uh, bacteria in there that you didn't want that either weren't serving a purpose or maybe had a negative uh, effect on the cheese But
0: mm-hmm. so they
3: created uh, a series of blends, culture blends based on the original uh, way starters uh, all the way back uh, over a hundred years, and really came up with a much more refined system of what's known as bulk starter culture. So uh, you would keep uh, a mother culture uh, that was uh, the original derivation and they uh, ended up with 20 or so different blends uh, that they would then sell to all of the, the sort of cheese makers around the cheddar making region and in the area. And that's really what people use for, for several decades. So uh, original bacteria from, from the original cheddar making region uh, multi-strain, multi-bacteria, uh, and uh, that went on for for at least a generation, if not uh, two. At that point, they invented uh, freeze-dried uh, starter cultures, and what would happen is that is that actually they were much easier to use and manage. Uh, they were commercially sort of more viable uh, for the starter culture companies, if you like. So. Uh, a lot of cheesemakers moved away from the traditional uh, bulk starter cultures in favor of, uh, and those bulk starter cultures need to be grown up the day before you make the cheese. There's right. lots of complexity about how you use them. So when a, an easy alternative came along, quite a lot of cheesemakers decided, unfortunately, that actually they take the, the easier, safer option of, mm-hmm. of the freeze-dried culture. And a lot of people s- stopped using the bulk starter cultures. And, and in fairness, we as a business, were attempting to do the same thing, so we we went about our business, trialing the freeze-dried cultures and measuring them against the uh, the the bulk starter culture, original recipe cheese, and the, and the new. But we could never ever really get happy that we were replicating what we were originally doing. So the starter cultures, in effect, couldn't be replaced. A lot of the a lot of the friendly bacteria that we wanted uh, in the the original collection of starter cultures wouldn't survive the freeze drying process.
2: Right, so that's a, interesting. Yeah.
3: Yeah. There's a sort of centrifuge and a and a freeze drying process uh, that effectively eliminates a lot of the more complex bacteria from the traditional starter cultures. So you end up with a an oversimplified version of the original, if you like. Mm. So we, we could never get happy with the with freeze-dried alternative. But eventually there were so few people using the traditional bulk staff cultures that the laboratory uh, that inherited those cultures decided that they were gonna cease production. Wow. Uh, and we, we were offered the opportunity, if you like, to take uh, and curate the original set of mother cultures that had been handed down
2: well, that must have been quite an undertaking. So, this is your uncle who who took this on. Did he made that decision to what to uh, to yes, take on sure. setting he, up a lab and yeah?
3: He was the one that was was in charge of cheese making uh, at Barbers at the time, and uh, he was the one that decided that uh, this is Nicky Barber uh, mm-hmm. decided that he could not he could not make the cheese that he wanted to make uh, of mm. the quality he wanted to make with the with the modern freeze dried cultures. And so right. he was the one when offered the opportunity to curate the original set of cultures, jumped at the opportunity.
2: Did they offer it to him because they knew, that he was interested. Or was he was one of the last few farmers buying the bulk, this bulk starter. Then he, he had an he had an interest in, in using it and maintaining it. Then
3: most definitely. Well, he, he, a he was very passionate about that, uh, but also uh, he was uh, he was probably the the largest of the cheese makers at the time that continued using uh the traditional cultures
2: right and oh, that's interesting
3: when he when he took them on it was with a view to uh, maintaining their use not only uh in our own business but in a number of other traditional uh high quality cheddar making businesses and what, in the what year
2: does this happen giles
3: this this would have been back in the 1980s uh, right. i can't remember okay. the exact Gosh, exact year right right
2: it's yeah. quite a moment isn't it because it's, that's the sort of time when you you start to see uh you know the flicker, the beginnings of a sort of of a rise of or i don't know revival whatever you want to call it of, of british farmhouse cheese cheese is you know happening there is a real people i think people are starting to see that we could be losing things and some people are starting to try and save them that's the impression i get
3: yes i, I think there's a sort of connection I, I think sort of probably through the 80s and 90s was maybe Maybe a bit of a low point to some extent for sort of artisan uh, and farmhouse cheesemaking because uh, the number of cheesemakers continued to decline. Uh, really, probably right through, right through the 80s and 90s, uh, and, but there was always a core uh, presidium, if you like, of traditional cheddar makers that, that remained, but only, only really five uh, that continue to use these uh, bulk starter cultures. Uh, a lot of the larger companies moved away to, to using the sort of freeze-dried variants.
2: So, that, so to, again, just to go back, so, he, so your uncle takes on the, the collection. Um, but that, what I, I think why I was thinking what a, what a task that must have been is that, you know, presumably having a lab and growing and maintaining starter cult, bacterial starter cultures is quite a thing, which is quite different from cheese making. Or, I mean, you know, so he must have had to get in kit and expertise oh, yeah. and all sorts.
3: And def- definitely. Well, it, it needed to um, it needed to build a laboratory first and foremost uh, with the correct uh, conditions to maintain the uh, the mother cultures. So they they live in little tiny little sort of vials. That there's there's not a lot of them, but you don't need a lot of starter culture mother culture to create a lot of uh, starter culture. So the first thing that needed to be done. So we have a sort of minus uh, minus seventy degree storage facility for Gosh. the mother cultures. So that's. Yeah job number one is to make sure that you can protect them in the proper environment job number two is to make sure that you can use them i guess and uh and for that uh uh whilst nikki's a a very clever cheesemaker he's he's not a scientist either or a microbiologist so uh that the the clever work there if you like was down to uh, a chap called ray osborne who came with the cultures if you like uh, from the original laboratory that was curating them uh and in fact he was he was one of the, dare I say, one of the key inventors of the freeze-dried culture, and uh,
2: was he? to some ex-
3: yes. To some extent, I think he always repented.
2: He has <laughs> he regretted invented, he'd uh, done freeze, it. Yes, yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. But it so, is so he... like, just...
2: Oh, I see. He pre- did. People call them pipe pot cultures. Am I imagining that? Is that another name no, for no, these?
3: No. Yeah. No, you're not. They're Pint cultures, so John Lewis cultures, cultures, after the guy who started sort of selecting the bacteria from the milk, he he was the original scientist that sort of built the collection, if you like. Uh, And uh, the way that you grow a mother culture into a usable starter culture is to add it to a pint format. So it's it's a small pint bottle, so you grow up the starter culture in a pint medium first. And then, when you use the starter cultures on the day of, of cheese make, uh, you or the day before cheese make, you grow them up in a much bigger starter vessel that you inoculate with a pint. Uh, so that's uh-huh. why they're called right. pint cultures.
2: Okay. Oh, well, thank you. Good. I mean, since I think people who make sourdough are probably, you know, in a way, perhaps this patterning that you know of growing and making and using a bit, you know, keeping that like, cycle going. That this probably makes a lot of sense to them, doesn't it? Um,
3: yeah. It would do. And actually, <laughs> Ray ray Osborne himself was a great, uh, he had a great sourdough culture as well, would you believe? but You uh, oh, probably would believe that, given the yeah. sort of scientist that he was. So he used to share that around the office. So whilst he was around, we had a lot of people uh, maintaining uh, the sourdough culture that, that Ray brought with him as well. That's but he's, fantastic. he's disappeared off to the Pyrenees, where uh, I suspect he's probably still got his sourdough culture. I haven't spoken yes. to him for, uh, for 18 months or so.
2: Ah, oh, it sounds like he's pretty happy, busy with with sourdough, and um, yeah. I yes. think so, so what the amazing thing is then? So these stalch cultures can just be kept going, then. and so I mean that's sort of this incredible thing that they all exist, you know, what for for decades. Then obviously quite happily, they, and uh, yeah,
3: they will. I mean they'll they'll exist forever, really, in their frozen state. Uh, so as long as we keep the temperature right, they'll they'll last forever. There is obviously a finite amount of the mother culture. Currently, at our current rate of use, we've got enough for about 180 years. So okay,
2: that's I'm good. I'm kind of hoping that, uh,
3: <laughs> yeah, somebody will find a way of uh, of expanding the mother culture <laughs> before we get to 180 years down the line.
2: And can I ask, Charles, so, you know, when you're, given that people were moving to freeze-dried culture, was there then a bit of a revival of interest in these in these pint cultures? Did, did cheesemakers think actually, maybe I'm missing a trick. Maybe my cheese could taste more interesting if I tried a different starter. I and mean, then did they come to Barber's? You know, was, is that, was there sort of, yeah, did, did what that act of saving these, curating this collection, did it then find a market that was receptive for it?
3: I would say that that actually it's really quite difficult to use these bulk starter cultures and you have to have the facilities to grow them uh, on site during, as part of your cheese making process. And it's 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 essentially quite difficult to engage uh, people who don't have those facilities in in sort of in creating them and using bulk starter cultures, and and they're very difficult. Really, uh, the bulk starter cultures are still used by the, the traditional artisan cheddar makers of the region. Uh, And and also, uh, you know, those starter cultures that were used for making Caffilly and Wensleydale and Cheshire. Mm. So we still have uh, customers, if you like, for those starter cultures in those regions, making other traditional... uh, So I'm guessing some of the
2: people that I've interviewed for this podcast, people like Trothowan or the Applebee's, uh, um, Jamie Montgomery, who makes cheddar. Would these be? I don't want to give away any secrets, but but would they? I was just thinking, these. Yes. Do they use your cult? Yeah. Okay. That those makes are sense. Those,
3: those those are names that are very familiar to me uh, yeah. in the world of of starter cultures, and particularly yeah. the likes of uh, Montgomery's, Keynes, Quicks, yeah. Westcom, uh, Applebee's. Uh, they they all use. The traditional pint starter cultures. Fantastic. This
2: is what's really important, isn't it? In a way that this is what's keeping the yeah. It's an amazing thing that you're keeping by by preserving these bacterial cultures and this way of making cheese. It's allowing the, these cheeses, which you know, which are traditional cheeses, to be made, you know, in a particular way. So that's pretty pretty exciting, isn't uh, it? Yeah, I think
3: it's, it's it's the it's the sort of the flavour uh, the flavour or, or as close as you're ever going to get to uh, to what cheddar used to taste like. Uh, yeah, uh, centuries ago, uh, you'll only get there by using the traditional starter culture uh, system.
2: Fantastic! Oh, well, Charles. That was great. Thank you. That was really absolutely fascinating. So, um, a wonderful insight. And I think hopefully, when people can just sort of pause and think about think about this sort of whole hidden world. Uh, yeah. Yes, I know, um, I know.
3: Sorry, it's a very, it's a technical kind of uh, thing, the starter cultures. But I, I know the the listeners uh, to, to your program uh, are sort of passionate about their cheese. And uh, hopefully that's given them a small insight into uh, the world of starter cultures uh, at Barber's and amongst the, the really traditional cheddar-making fraternity uh, here in, in the West Country.
2: Wonderful. Thank you for your time, Giles. Take care.
3: Thanks, Jenny. Bye. Bye. To
1: find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Enhance your cheese board with Peter's Yard sourdough crackers this Christmas. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado, Amazon, Petersyard.com and Specialist Food Retailers.
2: Thank you so much for listening to A Slice of Cheese. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it, it would be lovely if you could rate us on wherever you found this podcast. It would make such a difference to us. So I hope you'll enjoy us again. Thank you very much.